The following podcast contains explicit language. The first sign of trouble at Ruby Ridge was when the dog started barking. The dog's name was Stryker, and he belonged to a man called Randy Weaver. Weaver and his family lived on top of a rocky outcropping in a ramshackle cabin a few miles outside Naples, Idaho. There was no electricity or phone service and no indoor plumbing. Randy's wife, Vicky, retreated to a shed when she was menstruating. They followed their own idiosyncratic religious belief system, and their view of the world tended toward paranoia. They thought America was secretly under the rule of a cabal they called Zog, the Zionist-occupied government. When Stryker started barking, the weavers followed. Maybe he'd caught the scent of a game animal. But they were wary because they lived in fear that their isolated mountain homestead would come under attack by armed agents of the federal government. They were right. Six U.S. Marshals, including several members of the agency's elite special operations group, had arrived at the Weaver's property, and Stryker had picked up their scent. It was August 21st, 1992. Weaver, a fugitive on a federal firearms charge, has been holed up in a cabin near Naples for more than a year. They say Weaver is a white supremacist and claim he's heavily armed. The U.S. Marshals on the scene had been tasked with getting Randy Weaver off the mountain peacefully. That wasn't going to happen. Good afternoon. A federal agent has been shot and killed in a confrontation with a fugitive in North Idaho. Shots rang out near the home of Randy Weaver. Federal authorities from all over the country planning their next move. John Allison, News 4. John Allison was a news reporter at a TV station in Spokane, just across the Washington border. When he arrived on the scene, hundreds of representatives from local and federal agencies were setting up a command post about a mile from the cabin. We were starting to see an influx of military vehicles, uh, helicopters. Even a couple of armored personnel carriers. It is a stunning and overwhelming show of force. They were staging for a, a major effort, a major enterprise. And so I got word that a lot of this was coming in and staging at the airport in Bonners Ferry, which was 10 or 15 miles to the north. So I took a photographer up to the airport, and it was fairly early in the morning and got up there, and it looked like a scene from Vietnam. And so I did a stand-up from that airport that uh, said something to the effect that, uh, you know, Randy Weaver was somebody who simply wanted to be left alone. But with the sudden appearance of military hardware like this, His one-man stand against the law is suddenly taking on the appearance of a full-blown war. The Weaver's home at Ruby Ridge was under siege. The standoff lasted for 11 days, and three people died in all, including Vicki Weaver. Here's Randy describing the moment she was killed. He's speaking to a Senate subcommittee in 1995. At the time she was gunned down, she was helpless. She was standing in the doorway of her home. She was holding Elisheba, our 10-month-old baby girl, in her arms. As the bullet crashed through her head, she slumped to her knees. We took the baby from her as she lay dead and bleeding on her kitchen floor. Take whatever, whatever time you need, Mr. Weaver. Thank you. 
I'm not without fault in this matter. If I had it to do over again, knowing what I know now, I would make different choices. When the whole thing was over, the government had spent millions of dollars to pursue one small case against one small man, and would go on to spend millions more to fix its own mistakes. There would be a federal trial, hearings in the U.S. Senate, and an investigation by the Department of Justice. From Slate Podcasts, this is Standoff. I'm your host, Ruth Graham. How did a middle-class family from Iowa end up on a remote Idaho mountain, heavily armed and facing down the FBI? And how did law enforcement agencies screw up a small potatoes criminal case so badly that they turned a paranoid nobody into a right-wing folk hero? It all started when one guy sold another guy a couple of sawed-off shotguns. Randy Weaver was born in a small town in Iowa in 1948. He joined the Army during the Vietnam War and passed the training required to join the elite special forces, but he ended up quitting before he made it overseas. Randy met Vicki Jordison in the late 1960s. Vicki was raised on a farm, and she was close to her father, who followed a breakaway sect of Mormonism and was interested in prophecy and the end times. After Vicki and Randy married, they sold Amway products to get by. Then Randy got a better job at a John Deere factory. Over time, Randy and Vicky became more interested in religion. They pored over a best-selling book called The Late Great Planet Earth that found predictions of nuclear war in Bible passages and warned that the end was near. And they wandered pretty far from mainstream Christian teachings. They read only the King James Version of the Bible and started following Old Testament laws about things like eating unclean meat— Randy hosted a raucous late-night Bible study that met at a local family restaurant, and they sent away for pamphlets, comic books, and tapes with titles like Satan's Angels Exposed. You know, for the Weavers, this America that they felt they'd grown up with uh, was disappearing, and they were looking for some kind of answer. That's Jess Walter, who covered Ruby Ridge for the Spokane Spokesman Review and later wrote a book about it. He said the Weavers developed their own belief system, finding prophecies in the Old Testament and signs of the coming apocalypse in current events. The Weavers distrusted the Jews, other minorities, the Illuminati, credit cards, and most churches. They both had visions about their future and what God wanted them to do. The family resisted labels. At times, they didn't even call themselves Christians— but they were strongly influenced by a racist movement called Christian Identity that was on the rise in the 1980s. The idea behind Christian Identity is that white people are the true people of God, and that a race war has to take place before the second coming of Christ. The sides of this religion that are truly damaging and truly dangerous are that people of color, Africans, are mud people, that people we see as Jewish are the spawn of Satan. At some point, the Weavers stopped talking about the imminent apocalypse and started actively preparing for it. In early 1983, they told a reporter they believed the government was going to purposely create chaos as an excuse to institute martial law and ultimately establish a one-world government. 
They had begun stockpiling weapons and canned food. And most importantly, the family said, they were planning to move out west. They were looking in Colorado or Montana or Idaho. This was almost something that was driven by the voice of God himself. We had had beliefs that, you know, if there ever was a natural disaster or downfall of the government or whatever, we wanted to be separated from the rest of the world. We did not want to be a part of it. Uh, Survival, you might call it. The family left Iowa that year and drove around the West in an old grain truck, sleeping in motels and searching for land they could afford. By then, they had three children, two daughters and a son. Vicki said that God had made it known to her that the family was to have a place to live by September 7, 1983. They found their property in northern Idaho just under the deadline, in a spot then known as Caribou Ridge. Vicki wrote in her diary that when they drove up to the property, it was just what God had shown them it would look like. The Weavers built a cabin, patching it together out of plywood and two-by-fours. The building was surrounded by a thick woods, and the family's water came from a spring about a quarter mile below the house. The Weavers lived like pioneers. They homeschooled their children and taught them to use guns. They hunted, gardened, and canned. And they loved, you know, living off the grid. They loved uh, the lifestyle. Uh, and I think they, they felt like they'd stumbled on the America that they set out to find. But the Weavers' idea of pastoral contentment was wrapped up in apocalyptic fantasy. Randy told a neighbor before they even moved in, Armageddon's going to end on that hill. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Weaver family had moved to Idaho in part to get away from the reach of the federal government. What they didn't know was that the federal government was paying more and more attention to Idaho. Kootenai County in northern Idaho is home to some of the choicest scenery and the best recreation in the West. But there is trouble in Kootenai County because this is also home for the white supremacist Aryan Nations Church. Not a large group, but one regarded as quite dangerous by law enforcement agencies. The Aryan Nations Church was an anti-Semitic organization with connections to the same Christian identity theology the family had been attracted to in Iowa. It calls itself a church, but its leaders preach hate. Believers who regard Adolf Hitler as one of their main prophets. Blacks and Jews as their main enemies. Since the 1970s, the church had operated out of an armed compound about an hour from the Weaver's new home. Founder Richard Butler, a former engineer from California, claimed 300 members in northern Idaho and 6,000 followers nationally. He believed that white nationalists should move to the Northwest in order to establish their own Aryan homeland. And he called for his congregants to arm themselves to prepare for a coming race war. Are you at war with blacks and Jews? No, I am not at war with them, they're at war with us. 
Every year, Butler's fans and followers convened for an event called the Aryan World Congress. Bikers, skinheads, neo-Nazis, and Ku Klux Klan members came for speeches and spaghetti dinners. Their goal, they say, is a separate all-white nation headed by a provisional government. We want a national homeland for our people. Anything in furtherance of this holy cause is approved. Anything without exception. Once, news cameras captured them shooting at photos of the one-time Israeli prime minister. And the adults practice in deadly earnest, taking pot shots at pictures of Menachem Begin. He ain't got a hook nose anymore. Butler billed it as a family-friendly event. With guns and burning crosses, if you will. That's journalist Bill Moreland, who covered extremist groups throughout the 1980s for the Spokesman Review. Moreland and a few other reporters were invited to cover these annual gatherings. They would refer to us as the Jews media. Uh, In my case, I happen to be of Norwegian ancestry. I have blonde hair, what's left of it, and blue eyes. And so they viewed me as a race traitor. Richard Butler would frequently say, you know, Bill, you're on the wrong side. You're working for the Jews that control the media, and you should be up here with us. The culmination of the Aryan World Congress was usually a cross-burning on Saturday night, though Butler preferred to call it a cross-lighting. The ceremony that I witnessed was actually called a blessing of the weapons ceremony. Each participant in a circle around these burning crosses would come forward with their weapon and have it blessed under this burning cross. These were, you know, weapons of war for these Aryan warriors. At least that was their storyline. For some time, the Aryan nation's hateful rhetoric was mostly just that, a lot of talk. But that changed in 1983. Well, among those people who attended these Aryan World Congresses at the Aryan Nations were a group of young men, some of whom had just gotten out of prison. And they were tired of just listening to Richard Butler. And they thought the time had come to, you know, get into action to actually start a race war in the United States. These men formed a group called the Order, or Bruderschwagen, German for the Silent Brotherhood. And they went on a violent crime spree. Last year, half a million dollars stolen from an armored car. Denver, June 18th. Local radio personality Alan Berg, a Jew, machine gunned to death in the driveway of his home. Ukiah, California, July 19th. Another armored car holdup. More than three and a half million dollars taken. The order was only active for a little more than a year, until Robert J. Matthews, the group's leader, was killed in an FBI standoff. But the group's highly visible crimes drew law enforcement attention to the Aryan World Congress, where the members had met. The FBI and the ATF and local law enforcement knew that the Aryan Nations was a magnet for criminal activity. That really wasn't in dispute. And so all those agencies set about doing major investigations of what was going on there. And in the middle of all this comes Randy Weaver. Randy Weaver attended several Aryan World Congresses, tagging along at first with a survivalist friend in 1986. He was never a formal member of the church. Randy had some theological differences with Richard Butler, and he just wasn't a joiner. He later claimed he was simply there to see what was going on. But he obviously wasn't that alarmed by what he saw and heard at Butler's compound. One year, he even brought Vicky and the kids with him. At his first Aryan World Congress, Randy met a friend of a friend named Gustav Magisano. 
Gus was a scruffy motorcycle buff and a gunrunner, who said he had contacts eager to buy illegal weapons. Three years later, Randy needed money. In a moment of desperation, he turned to Gus Magisano. In August 1989, he told Gus that he'd like to go to work for him. That is, to help him with his illegal gun operation. Hey, Vicky. Yeah. This is Gus. Hi. Now Gus was calling to follow up. How are you? Real good. What's going on? Nothing much. Is your old man around? Yeah. Hold on. Thanks. Hi. Hey, guy. How you doing? Good. Within 30 seconds, Randy and Gus got down to business. Uh, tend to the, the chainsaws. Uh-huh. Um, what do you think you can do with those as far as uh, uh, the sizes of them that we talked about? Gus wasn't really talking about chainsaws. Chainsaw was an Aryan nation's code word for a gun, in this case a shotgun. In their initial conversation, Randy said he could cut down the gun's barrels. But making a sawed-off shotgun is illegal under most circumstances, and Randy knew it. Well, I'll uh, have to see. I'll, I'll talk to you more about it then. Okay. Okay? That'll be fine. Gus and Randy met up 11 days later to complete the transaction. They first stopped at a local restaurant, but left to keep the deal private. How about the public park? Okay. Down that way we can kind of keep an eye on anything that's coming around. This is a little too... Yeah, too many people. Yeah, okay. The audio here is somewhat hard to understand, but the sale went like this. Randy showed Gus two shotguns he had cut down with a vice and a hacksaw. Gus admired the quality. All right. Beautiful. This looks like you did a real nice job, so... Hey, I can do better than that. I mean, uh... All right. They haggled over the price. How about if I give you... Today, how about if I give you 300 for both? Gus offered 300 for both. Randy said he needed more. I'm going to have to have 300 on the shotgun. Or the pump. All right. Gus gave Randy the 300 he had on hand and promised to pay him 150 more the next time they saw each other. 120, And the deal was done. Two sawed-off shotguns for $450. Randy told Gus he could get more guns, and he promised that if things went bad, he wouldn't rat on Gus. If I go down the tube, I'd go down the tube. All right. Well, I don't fuck nobody. Nobody goes down the tubes. Nobody goes down the tubes. The deal seemed to go pretty smoothly, but the next time the men met, something had shifted. It was late November, and the pair met up in Gus's Nissan, parked outside a motel in nearby Sandpoint, Idaho. This time, their conversation was tense. Gus wanted Randy to take him to Montana to meet some guys who he had heard were trafficking weapons out there. The Montana guys had broken off from the Aryan Nations, and Gus was interested in making a connection. But Gus still owed Randy $150, and Randy wouldn't let him forget it. Well, if you just give me what you owe me, I can hang on until next time I meet you. This isn't going to cause a problem between us, is it? Well, I hope not. Finally, Randy got to what was really troubling him. I, uh, had a guy from Spokane 
tell me that you were bad. I had a guy in Spokane tell me that you were a badge. Randy was worried that Gus was a cop. That's all I care about is my family. And if I get to go to prison or anywhere, you know, I'm going to be pissed off. That's all I got to say. You approached me and offered me a deal. This scumbag. Gus was indignant. Will you do me a favor? You get a hold of whoever this clown is in Spokane. And you turn to shove it up his ass. Because I'm not a badge. And if I was a badge, I suppose I'd be wired. And you're welcome to check me for a wire. And uh, that's bullshit. And I don't like it. You're welcome to check me for a wire. That was misdirection. Gus wasn't wired at the time. But his car was. And no, he wasn't a badge. But he was an informant. You've been hearing the recordings he made for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or the ATF. And this will be a recording in reference to ATF case 93380885576. And your name is Ken Pagley. You understand, Ken, that there's a tape recorder in here and you give your permission to record your conversations? Yes, I do. Gus's real name was Kenneth Fadley. He was one of many federal informants keeping an eye on the Aryan nations after the order's violent crime spree. Fadley would later claim that he was barely interested in Randy Weaver, at first. In fact, at this point, Randy didn't have a criminal record of any kind. But on top of selling him the sawed-off shotguns, Randy had told Fadley he knew those guys out in Montana. Fadley was hoping that Randy could make that connection for him. Randy was like the street-level drug dealer who the cops bust in the hopes they can pressure him to flip on someone bigger. It was going to be a quick operation. Randy introduces the feds to the gunrunners, the gun charges are wiped from the books, and Randy goes back to his reclusive mountain life. But Randy got suspicious and refused to make the introduction. The Montana plan was a bust. Randy's involvement with the ATF might have ended there. But four months later, Fadley's cover was blown. That meant the ATF needed to find a new informant, someone to gather information for the Bureau on an ongoing basis. And they thought maybe Randy Weaver was ready to become a snitch. It wasn't a crazy idea. Randy had run for sheriff a few years back, and he was a military veteran, so they thought he might be sympathetic to law enforcement. And the ATF had some dirt on him. In June, two ATF agents found Randy and Vicky at a restaurant in Naples. They told Randy they had evidence of the illegal shotgun sale. They offered to play him the tapes of his conversation with Fadley and told him he was likely to be indicted on federal charges, unless... We asked for his assistance in providing information on certain persons associated with the Aryan Nations. Herb Byerly, one of the agents, testified about the offer later. He'd been Kenneth Fadley's supervisor. Mr. Weaver was informed if he assisted, this information would be relayed to the appropriate assistant U.S. attorney. Mr. Weaver Byerly and his colleagues at the ATF figured it could go one of two ways. Either Randy would become an informant and gather dirt on his white supremacist associates for them. Or he'd submit to charges on the gun sale and probably cop a plea or get acquitted. 
the experienced criminals they usually dealt with would not have viewed the gun wrap as a big deal. But Randy was not an experienced criminal. Mr. Weaver declined, saying he would not be a snitch and that providing information or assistance was against his beliefs. Do you think, uh, now looking back at it, Mr. Byerly, that you might have handled certain things differently? If I had, if I know what I know now about the whole thing? Yeah. Well, I would certainly have, knowing the totality of the whole thing, yes, it's, it's, it's like taking your family on a, a Sunday drive and uh, being involved in a car accident and your family is killed and, and you survive. If I knew that, would I take my family on the Sunday outing? No. The ATF, in all their planning, missed the fact that their prospective informant was kind of a paranoid extremist. Here's Jess Walter again. He and his wife saw it as the first step of of a coming apocalypse that they thought would come through federal law enforcement anyway. You have to remember, this is a family that went a road from... Canada to Bonners Ferry was widened to four lanes. They believed it was so that tanks could come down, UN tanks for the coming takeover. So these were people who were living in fear. And when federal agents approach them and say, uh, we want you to be an informant, that's what they think is going to happen. They think that this is the beginning of the end. Randy was indicted on the gun charges in December of 1990, just as Herb Byerly of the ATF had warned. As the court date approached, Randy and Vicky vowed he wouldn't surrender to the authorities. In January, he and Vicky ventured into town for supplies after a series of snowstorms. Driving their pickup, they saw another truck with a camper broken down on a bridge. A man with shaggy hair was tinkering with the engine, and a woman without a winter coat was beside him. The weavers stopped to help. The stranded motorists were, in fact, undercover ATF agents— other officers rushed out of the camper to arrest Randy. Vicky got into a struggle with the female agent and ended up face down in a snowbank. Randy was released on bail the next day and returned to the cabin. That futile encounter only made the Weavers more determined to resist. Weaver would pay no heed to anyone. Bill Moreland again. He was steadfast in his intention to stay on the mountaintop cabin with his family. His friends and neighbors would bring him up, you know, survival supplies and food, and bring up his mail, and they were as linked to the outside world. Randy didn't show up for his court date. Just like they had always predicted, it was the Weaver family against the government. They will live in a constant state of alert, um, waiting for this coming invasion that they've been expecting since they left Iowa. It's amazing that it's almost like they started with this paranoia and they somehow manifested it. It, it, it became true. On both sides, it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, the federal law enforcement goes out looking for um, radicalized uh, white supremacist criminals, and they end up creating one. And the weavers, you know, venture out in the world thinking that the world's going to end, you know, through a federal attack. And, And in both cases, a sort of blindness, you know, leads to this tragic outcome. What happened at Ruby Ridge captivated the far right because they see it as a story about an innocent family, a white family specifically, assaulted by a federal government that they love to hate. But for me, 
Ruby Ridge is compelling precisely because it's something much less comforting. A story with unsympathetic protagonists, well-meaning villains, and unexpected heroes. A story that, if just a few things had gone differently, never would have been a story at all. Next week on Standoff, we'll find out what happened in August 1992 when a dog barked and set off two days of violence and chaos at Ruby Ridge. Some marshals are going up there to arrest him. So they go up there. They don't even know what they're doing. They're from back east. They haven't even been here before. Samuel Weaver screamed, you killed my dog, you son of a bitch, and opened fire on them. To hear the rest of this series, subscribe to Standoff, What Happened at Ruby Ridge, in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Standoff, What Happened at Ruby Ridge is brought to you by Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Slate Plus members get a bonus episode of the show every week with in-depth interviews going further into the characters and themes. This week, I chat with Slate's Chow Tu about the origin of the series. And then I interview Jim Aho, an Idaho sociologist who studied the Order and other white separatist groups back in the 1980s. To hear that episode and help support the show, sign up at slate.com slash standoff. Standoff is produced by me and Nina Ernest, with production help from Andrew Parsons. Slate's editorial director for audio is Gabriel Roth. Thanks to Chow Tu, Dan Dundon, Jess Walter, Andrew Perella at New Hampshire Public Radio, Willa Paskin, Dan Coyce, Bill Carey, and Michael Jockin. And special thanks to Patrick Weigel and Lene Preston at the National Archives in Seattle.